you would take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, you may have noted a theme in our hymns this morning. We've come to a well-known passage in Ephesians chapter 6. In our scripture reading earlier in worship service, we heard from King David in Psalm 58. And it tends to be the kind of psalm that makes us uncomfortable. As I noted, it's called an imprecatory psalm in which David asks for God to take vengeance on his enemies. David might be known as a sweet psalmist of Israel, but he can also say some not-so-sweet things. Break their teeth in their mouths, O God. Let them melt away like running water. Let them be cut in pieces. Let them dissolve like snails. The righteous will rejoice when he sees this vengeance. The imprecatory psalms like that reveal the child of God's deep yearning for justice as well as victory for the glory of God. David's enemies were God's enemies. The ancient Israelites likely understood better than us that all of life is a battle. Sometimes it was a literal battle, but it was always a battle. We are not drafted into the army of Christ in order to enjoy peace in this world. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul looks beyond the physical battles and tells us as children of God, there is a war being waged at every moment. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Then I'm going to ask Jay to uh, bless the reading in prayer, and then we'll look at the text. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins gird about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Jay, would you lead us?
now. Back in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 5, the army of Israel was encamped nearby Jericho, and everyone was awaiting the impending battle. Joshua, who had assumed the leadership of Israel, was anticipating it more than most. Joshua chapter 5 describes a specific pre-battle moment when Joshua was wandering alone near Jericho, perhaps unwisely wandering alone near Jericho, likely making plans and preparations for the coming battle when he looks up and he is suddenly startled by a man standing, facing him, sword drawn in his hand. Joshua asked what was probably the most practical question given the situation, whose side are you on? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua 5, 14 tells us the first word the man uttered was no. Now, no is a strange answer when you have not been asked a yes or no question. Whose side are you on? No. It's as if by no, the man was saying, Joshua, you are asking the wrong question. Joshua had asked, whose side were you on? Joshua had asked, according to scripture, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man answered, no, but as captain of the army of the Lord, I am now come. I believe Joshua was standing before a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so when Joshua asked, whose side were you on? The answer came back, no, Joshua, you don't need to be asking whether or not I'm on your side. You need to ask yourself whether or not you are on my side. This battle, every battle belongs to the Lord. He didn't come to take a side. I like H.B. Charles says, he didn't come to take a side He came to take over. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing the church at Ephesus to remind them they are in a battle and the only hope they have of overcoming the schemes and attacks of Satan is the victory that is assured through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says, Now thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Romans 8, 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Through him that loved us. Beginning at verse 10, the Apostle Paul is putting his finishing touches on this letter to the Ephesians, right? Finally, my brothers, he says, right? He's gearing up for the closing argument. And really what it does is it starts this short but almost separate section of the letter. You know, I've been telling you the first three chapters are 
doctrinal primarily. The last three chapters are practical primarily. Right? In chapters 1 through 3, Paul pictures believers as being united with Christ in the heavenly realms. Starting at chapter 4, he writes of living through Christ in this earthly realm. But in Ephesians 6, verse 10, through the end of the letter, he's telling us we are fighting for Christ in the spiritual realm. Maybe I could say it this way. Since Paul spent three chapters telling the Ephesians what to believe, and then started three more chapters telling them how to behave, it's only natural that the conclusion of the letter includes this final admonition to be ready to fight. If you believe the word of God in your heart, if you put the word into practice in your life, you'd better brace yourself for resistance. This is the natural conclusion to what Paul has been writing for six chapters now. If you believe that we are beneficiaries of salvation solely through the purpose and plan of God himself and for the praise of his glory, you're in for a battle. If you declare that every human being walking this earth is dead in trespasses and sins until such time as God divinely intervenes in their life, there's a fight coming. If you embrace fellow believers in the assembly without prejudice and without division, because you know if Jesus has reconciled us to God, he has reconciled us to one another, then you better brace yourself for what comes next. If your faith in the Lord Jesus leads you to live as a loving husband, a submissive wife, an obedient child, a patient father, a hard-working employee, or a kind-hearted master, then you need to accept that all of those righteous behaviors are bound to end up with a declaration of war against you. You have been drafted into the army of the Lord. And when hostilities inevitably break out, know with confidence through the work of the commander Jesus Christ that you are on the Lord's side and victory is assured. Now we've read verses 10 through 18. Verses 10 through 18 fit together into sort of this, this compact, comprehensive unit. This morning, I'm not going to be able to deal with, with all of those verses. We're going to look at the first three primarily, verses 10 through 12. And in them, we will see Paul gives three expectations of spiritual warfare. The apostle describes how we're to be first, strengthened for the fight, second, suited up for battle, and third, standing against the enemy. Strengthened for the fight is in verse 10. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Verse 10 is a divine command. Listen, this is not offered as a good idea, a reasonable choice, or an optional accessory for our lives. It is a command 
Be strong in the Lord. The word of God has given Christian soldiers this marching order. Stop trusting in your own strength and trust in the mighty strength of God. Actually, in the original language, and this is important for you to understand. In the original language, it is a continual imperative. That is, it is a command for an ongoing activity. We might say, keep on being strong in the Lord. This command to be strong in the Lord both affirms the mighty power of God and it assumes the inadequate weakness of God's people. It's so difficult for us to admit, or at least admit in a way that seems like we mean it. But let's stop pretending that we're all spiritual giants in here. There's probably very few of us in this room who are as strong as we think we are. And there is nobody in this room who is as strong as you need to be. But in this spiritual battle, it's not the amount of your strength which will win the day. It is the source of your strength. Who will win the day? When were you ever strong enough to fight your own battles? The answer is never. This is something we knew that moment we came to faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. If you and I are without strength, then what hope do we have to stand in the day of battle? Our only hope is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Or I actually really like the way the NIV translates this here. It is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The Lord alone. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ Paul's talking about. The Lord alone is the source of power strong enough to make us stand. But I want you to make a note of what Paul says here. <clears throat> because it would be easy for us to read this and just think of it as we always think of it and misunderstand. He does not just say, be strong from the Lord. He says, be strong in the Lord. To be strong from the Lord merely affirms that the Lord Jesus is our source of strength. And that is a good thing. And yet here's how we often apply that in practice. When we experience some resistance or opposition in our lives, at that moment, we turn to the Lord to receive strength in the face of that opposition. And it's not like that's a horrible application, but that's really not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, when the battle comes, be sure to ask the Lord for strength. What he's commanding us to do is to be strong in the Lord all the time. Keep on being strong in the Lord so that you are strong in the Lord even before the battle comes. 
Listen, you can't treat God like he is a gas station that you come to in order to get some source of power for a little while and you'll go back and recharge later when you need it. Our victory on the spiritual battlefield is not going to come thanks to the decisions that we make and the actions that we take when the devil attacks. Our spiritual victory is based in being strong in the Lord before the devil attacks. This is why the command is really keep on being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We have this constant need for empowerment, this constant need to rely on the Lord's strength. You would not have woke up this morning and rolled out of bed except God had strengthened you to do it. You would not have just drawn breath in order to sing his praises unless God had strengthened you to do it. And you surely can't stand against the schemes of Satan unless God strengthens you to do it. To keep on being strong in the Lord requires us to know him through his word, to seek him in our daily prayers, to love him as our gracious Savior. Brothers and sisters, I I implore you, do not wait until your adversary, the devil, has attacked your life before you seek strength in the Lord. James, in the fourth chapter of his letter, condenses the thought of Paul's entire section here into two simple sentences. Listen to how James expresses this simply. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, period. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, period. You have to appreciate James's brevity. Two simple, straightforward sentences. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee. Or as Paul says, be strong in the Lord to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Those two actions have to go in that order. Submit to God, win the fight. It is foolish to think that you can do the second when you have not been actively engaged in doing the first. You cannot expect to you know, avoid immersing yourself in the word, to neglect your daily prayers, to reject obedience to his commands, and still somehow triumph when you are ambushed in this spiritual battle. It is a foolish soldier who thinks getting ready is what you do when the bullets start flying. You must be strong in the Lord and keep on being strong in the Lord and his mighty power if you expect to have strength for the fight. Second, Paul describes us suited up for battle in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, if we were right, if we were right about verse 10, that Paul's arguing we have to be 
ready in God's strength before the battle starts. Then verse 11 really becomes an explanation of how that's accomplished. It's another divine command. Again, it's not optional. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, the wiles or the schemes, that means, of the devil. When Satan conspires and unleashes some devious plot against your life, you'd better be suited up already, right? Again, this is the natural conclusion of what Paul's been writing through this whole letter. I'll remind you of Ephesians chapter 4, in which Paul several times argues for us to put off the old man and put on the new, the new man. You know, in, in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, he tells us that that old self is, is corrupt and deceitful. Or that new self is a creation of God in righteousness and true holiness. Listen, when God transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, when he rescued you from the shackles of sin and placed you beneath the banner of the cross, when he drafted you into the Lord's army and commissioned you as a faithful Christian soldier, ensuring that you were equipped for that battle was not an afterthought on his part. Disciples of the Lord Jesus have been outfitted with everything we need in order to fight the battle against the schemes of Satan. Thankfully, this is not a literal uniform that makes us all dressed just alike, but it is divine provision supplied to every faithful soldier. Now, what is this whole armor of God? We'll look at it in more detail in the future, but verses 13 through 17 describe each part of the battle gear. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, the, the Ephesians church would have been well acquainted with what it looked like to see a Roman soldier geared up for battle. They'd seen those soldiers walking down their roads. They'd perhaps stood in awe and even saw them in action. Maybe even a member or two of the church at Ephesus had been Roman soldiers and had put that gear on for themselves. The Apostle Paul uses this well-known reality as an illustration for being in God's armor. The truth like a belt holding everything together. Righteousness is a breastplate for your body. The gospel like shoes for your feet. Faith like a shield. Salvation like a tough metal helmet. And the spirit-inspired word of God as the sword to wield as you advance in battle. 
just as every Roman soldier would be sort of kitted out with the, the armor to protect every part of his body, Paul says each disciple of Jesus Christ is provided battle gear needed to protect our souls. But again, this is not something you put on after the struggle starts. Listen again to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The idea there is you don't know what day is going to be the evil day. You don't know when wickedness is going to attack your life. You don't know when Satan is going to spring one of his schemes against some weak portion of your life. But when you have on the armor of God, when you're standing strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, you have done all you could do. And when the evil day comes, you will be able to stand your ground. So in verse 10, Paul commands us to be strengthened for the fight. In verse 11, he says we have to be suited up for battle. And in verse 12, he describes standing against the enemy. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. We have an enemy. The devil and his demons are real. They are powerful. They are dangerous. They are awaiting the opportunity to launch an attack against your soul. There are two great errors in the way that we deal with that reality, this truth about Satan and his demonic horde. One error is to discount them, to ignore him, to live as if the adversary does not exist. The error on the opposite extreme is to get so preoccupied with the devil and his demons that it makes them have an undue influence on our life and thoughts. Back in verse 11, Paul uses that word wiles or schemes. It's actually the Greek word from which we derive our English word methods. Satan is going to unleash well-crafted plots. He has his methods. It's a word that's actually sometimes used to describe a predator like a a lion or a leopard slowly stalking its prey before it suddenly pounces against its unexpecting victim. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. The reality of Satan's schemes is to be met, Peter says, with sobriety and vigilance, right? Seriousness, alertness. There's an old writer named uh, William Gurnall who made a great observation about this I just loved. He said, 
The warning represents one of the greatest differences of how the Lord and Satan deal with their followers. God reveals to his followers the strength of their enemy. Satan does not dare reveal to his followers the strength of God or else they would mutiny. We get this warning about Satan. God has told us exactly about the enemy's power. Here and in Peter and in other places, 2 Corinthians 2.11 warns about uh, sin allowing Satan to gain a, a, a foothold and an advantageous position. Paul says, we are not ignorant of his devices. That is, we know how he works. Satan works through our own sinful nature to try to entice us to abandon God's commands. He, he works through our friends and family and co-workers and fellow students who challenge our stance of faith. He works through good-sounding false teaching, convenient distortions of God's word that might slowly erode our confidence in Jesus Christ and our obedience to his will. He works through those active enemies who work against us in this life to to steal or to slander or to, to strike out as we uphold God's position against sin. And yet those enemies, those people, <clears throat> are just tools for Satan's schemes. The real enemy <clears throat> is not those people. You know, the Apostle Paul, who writes this, had been shipwrecked and abandoned and arrested and beaten and stoned and left for dead by people. And yet he would tell us none of those enemies was the real enemy. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not, it's not anything that you can hold on that you can fight against. This is spiritual warfare. Listen in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. <laughs> I like how Paul likes to point out his own illustrations. He uses the word wrestle, which means hand-to-hand -hand combat. Right? You're in a fight. You're in a wrestling match, a, a grappling match, but it's not against flesh and blood. Right? You're in this wrestling match and you can't hold on to anything. Satan's schemes might manifest itself through real people sometimes, but he is the instigating force behind them. And if we think that striking back at them with our words or stones or schemes of our own if we think striking back at them is going to win the battle, we are playing directly into our adversary's hands. The various descriptions Paul uses in verse 12 are sort of frequently debated. Is he, there in verse 12, is he describing this sort of upper echelon of demonic authority or you know, sort of Satan's unseen army and the, the, the ranks that are involved? Or is he including world's political leaders when he talks about spiritual wickedness in high places? 
Well, maybe. I, think, I tend to think he's doing both, pointing out how evil schemes come through evil spirits against God's people as they use human authorities in order to attack the people of God. But either way, what he's saying in verse 12, it's perfectly clear that our fight is not against flesh and blood. You're wrestling, but you're wrestling against somebody you can't lay your hands on. So let me ask you, when two combatants start to wrestle, who is it that usually wins? Well, usually it's the one who's the strongest and the one who's the most prepared. As for you and I, how is it that we can stand our ground in a battle against an enemy that's not flesh and blood? How do you fight someone who is one, stronger than you, and two, you couldn't get a hold of anyway? Well, how about this? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, that's sort of part one of that text. We'll have to deal with the armor of God in detail next time. Thank you for your...